Welcome to Nyack Cast Group Chat. I'm Jamal Abdi. I'll be joined by Sina Tusi and Ryan Costello from our team. We're going to talk about a few different things today, and each of these articles and reports will be linked in the episode description. Um, We're going to get to some of our thoughts about a potential Joe Biden administration, some of the ideas being floated from the Democratic side that we're uh, a little bit concerned about. Uh, We're also going to talk about some of the bad ideas coming from the right, Uh, in particular, a report by an organization called JINSA urging for Trump to adopt a regime collapse approach to Iran, uh, at least officially. Uh, But first, we're going to get into a piece from The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins called The Twilight of the Revolution. Uh, It's a long piece talking about the current state of affairs inside of Iran. And I think we all had some concerns with it. So listen in. The takeaway that I had as well is like, yeah, it kind of this this narrative for a average reader would kind of make them reach the conclusion that, yeah, what's the point of diplomacy? What's the point of talking with this government? It's doomed. It's this very dark, bleak situation. And it seems like it's going to collapse in on itself or, you know, these these bad elements are gaining more power there. Yeah. And what really struck me was just this this defeatism that I think is it's accurate inside of Iran. And, and, you know, I do, you know, I get the strong sense that people are just disillusioned and I don't hear a lot of excitement about the prospects for, I mean, even with talk about the U.S. returning to the JCPOA under Biden, there's not a lot of optimism around that, that this is going to, this trajectory that Iran was on during the nuclear talks and with the JCPOA and people celebrating, um, you don't get the sense that people are excited about returning that tra- to, to that trajectory or hopeful about it, right? But I think that's where the responsibility for you know for a journalist or for analysts to put some context around these things is really important because you know several times it's mentioned throughout the piece the re- the regime is incapable of reforming itself, and yet throughout the piece we also see all of these instances of that reform process um, trying to take place. Uh, whether it's, you know, he talks about the the soccer matches, which, you know, terrible situation. This woman, you know, burned herself alive and then a small victory was achieved with women being admitted to the soccer stadiums. Um, but that's not something to just write off as that was nothing. Like that is examples of a contest inside of Iran for the future of the country and for these reforms actually to take place. And if you you take those things, um, and and it talks about like Rouhani challenging the IRGC and those contests between them trying to get the IRGC out out of um, you know dominating Iran's economy, uh, and then it talks about how the nuclear deal there had been hopes of of what that was going to achieve, and then Trump pulled out. But it's only it's sort of in passing, yeah. And then Trump pulled out, and that's why there's all these sanctions in place. And so if the takeaway from this is that there's no process of you know, contestation in Iran for what the future of the country is going to be, I think that's just, that's the wrong analysis. Like, that's actually, that's a very convenient narrative for people here in the United States who do want to say, yeah, there are no moderates in Iran, and we do have to just pursue regime change. And that's, to me, that's the problem of this piece, that it does fuel that conception of things. Right. I mean, it's very simplistic. Like, it really it obscures the role of U.S. pressure in both 
kind of allowing this kind of organic process of change in Iran kind of materializing. And the, and the, if the real kind of impact of our policies and kind of the policies promoted by our hardliners in Washington and promoting the kind of worst elements of Iran system and all the reactionary elements there. And I think, you know, that the piece, yeah, for sure, like many people in the IRGC, they are, they use America as a scapegoat. They want these hostilities to continue and they've been striving towards that end and preventing negotiations and, you know, pursuing more iron-fisted insular rule at home. But, you know, this piece really ignores the role that we can look back at the past 30 years, you know, that there have been overtures from Iran and there have been potential for kind of improving relations that were, you know, really spearheaded by the more moderate and reformist elements of that system that we've kind of, we've shot down. And this goes back to H.W. Bush and kind of, you know, he had a strategy you know, he came into his pres- presidency talking about goodwill begets goodwill. And Rafsanjani was, the more, you know, the more moderate figure there who, during the Iran-Contra crisis, to try to initiate some dialogue and detente with the U.S. And at that time, you know, th- Iran kind of facilitated the release of hostages in Lebanon. And in exchange, they were supposed to get some of the frozen assets freed. And that never happened. And that that marked, you know, there's there's many instances after that where, the Iranian side would make some overtures and then both, you know, hardline elements, I mean, both sides would be overtures from both sides on occasion. But in many cases, these overtures were sabotaged, not just by, you know, hardliners within Iran, but by U.S. policies and the U.S. not following through on its word. And that, you know, I think when it comes to someone like um, Khamenei and his kind of hostility to talks with the U.S., like, you know, Khamenei in the past several decades, he did approve a lot of negotiations with the U.S., whether that be under Rafsanjani, whether, you know, the Khatami presidency was really an overture to the U.S. And Khamenei, you know, like the 2001 cooperation in Afghanistan, that Iran played an instrumental role in kind of toppling the Taliban and getting the successor government there. The 2003 grand bargain proposal that Javad Zarif actually kind of communicated and helped spearhead, that was that at the sign-off of Khamenei, obviously the JCPOA. So I think these experiences and the U.S. kind of turning its back on them and, you know, the, the 2001 kind of support that Iran gave in Afghanistan, for example, was followed by Bush putting Iran in the axis of evil, uh, pursuing kind of very, these policies of increased pressure. Then, you know, also during the Khamenei president, Khatami presidency, the reformist presidents in the late 90s and early 2000s, Iran actually suspended its nuclear program. It ceased uranium enrichment with the, with the idea that, you know, through negotiations with Europe and the West, it would be able to come to some kind of settlement where it would kind of maintain kind of uh, uranium enrichment and this kind of more primitive nuclear program that the JCPOA gave it and kind of its rights under the NPT. But then, you know, George Welby Bush insisted on zero enrichment, insisted on this maximalist aim, and that discredited Khatami. So again, I think this role of U.S. pressure and really, really sabotaging and the moderates there, sabotaging the the potential for kind of Iran-U.S. relations improving. And through that, you know, Iran integrating with the global economy, the country being better allowed to undergo organic political change, the people becoming, the middle class getting empowered, these connections increasing. I think that would lead to organic political change. And I think that's one thing this piece also misses is it is a very simplistic black and white view of Iranian society over these past couple decades. Yeah, there's, of course, the story of all the repression and the brutality and the crackdowns. We all know that. But there is another side of, you know, the Iranian people really fighting for their rights, making gains. Like the Iran of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I mean, there's many changes. It's not, it's not, hasn't been the static kind of 1982 post-revolutionary Khomeini system. Right. 
And I think, yeah, I think that's, and you know, our, our hardliners and their hardliners empower each other and really echo each other and feed off each other. And that's something this piece totally misses. So I kind of read it from like the approach of maximum pressure is backfiring. So you see like all these people who are, you know, dismayed at the direction of their country. Like we, we definitely predicted that we said hardliners are going to be empowered. You know, Rouhani is going to be, you know, severely undercut, not going to be able to enact a, a domestic agenda that he had promised and, and, you know, wanted to make good on. And, you know, the IRGC is going to be empowered. And he, he spent a good amount of time talking about how the IRGC was looking at ways to undercut Rouhani and stuff like that. So I think between the lines, there was a lot of, a lot there that, you know, justifies a, a different direction from what the Trump administration is doing. But he also kind of interspersed with a lot of, uh, you know, pessimists out there, frankly, like a lot of hawkish uh, experts here in the United States, uh, in particular, who are supportive or at least open to the maximum pressure campaign. And so that kind of colors things that, you know, well, something's got to give and it's going to be the Islamic Republic rather than, you know, this, this failed approach uh, that, you know, has, has empowered the worst elements over there. I think what's really pernicious is that there is a campaign being conducted by the Trump administration, by, you know, both both states like Israel and Saudi Arabia, and organizations like FDD, like, you know, the entire network of anti, you know, anti-Iranian organizations in the U.S. There's a campaign to foster this disillusionment and to try to close the door on the prospect for uh, meaningful change uh, in Iran and with Iran, short of regime change and really, you know, a, a war with Iran. Um, and unfortunately, I think that this the narrative from this piece reinforces that. Um, a lot of the conversation has been about building a sanctions wall. So a lot of what the advocacy groups are doing with Trump right now are trying to get him to build a sanctions wall around maximum pressure so that um, it would be impossible to return to the deal and return to dialogue with Iran. And the idea is that there can be this wall of sanctions and pressure and uh, mutual animosity built between the Iranian government and the U.S. government that disillusioned those actors that are trying to influence those two governments to actually change their policies, uh, and in so doing can make it a fait accompli that we do end up in a conflict with Iran. Um, I think that that sanctions wall, it's not actually the, the legal sanctions that are in place. It is a psychological wall. Um, it, it's, there's a parallel, at least a, uh, there's an analogy that can be drawn between the sanctions wall and the wall that was built in Israel that was as much a security barrier as it was a means to send a psychological message to Palestinians that there's no overcoming this. You are consigned, you're, you're confined to your current fate, and so you should not challenge the system. You should um, accept it and make whatever concessions are necessary because you're not going to be able to overcome this wall. And so to me, the sanctions wall is as much the legal barriers to having a dialogue with Iran and actually returning to the nuclear deal as it is the psychological barriers of there's no means to actually change the current status quo, and we are bound to conflict with Iran until there's either a war or a collapse of the regime. And I think that is ultimately what is so destructive about this particular narrative right now. I think that's a that's a good segue to the Jinsa report that you had mentioned, and 
kind of, you know, one key element of influencing U.S. Iran relations is kind of the machinations of kind of the Israeli hard right, which really has come to rule over Israel and kind of is really dominating the political system there. And I think to the extent that, you know, for the Israeli hard right, that they want to annex the West Bank, that they want to consolidate this order that is undemocratic and is kind of ethno-supremacist in a way that, you know, is kind of Jewish Israelis would have all the rights and, you know, these Palestinians just live under permanent occupation, even though their territory has been annexed and they're ostensibly part of the state. And I think yeah. for them, you and know, which, which like, has roots in the, you know, the white nationalist movement or not roots, yeah. but it, it is the same phenomenon as we see with yeah. this creeping fascism worldwide and the white nationalist movement in the United States. Like these are all connected. So yeah, this which is, is not scary. Just it's why, Israel. you know, people like Steve Bannon or some of these kind of alt-right white nationalist figures here, one who are anti-Semitic, really. That one reason mm-hmm. they are supportive of Israel is because they view it as a model. You know, this this vision that many and is you know the hard right in Israel have for what they want in the U.S. is ostensible democracy that is really preferential, gives preferential treatment and rights mm-hmm. to one ethnic group over others. But regardless, I think in light of in light of this and these aims, that you know. That Israeli interest is very different than the U.S. interest in the Middle East. That Israeli interest is a small state that has these, these kind of these kind of aims that are expansionist, and it's surrounded by all these Muslim countries. And you know, it needs a great power like the U.S. to back it reflexively, be in the region, kind of paying the cost for kind of containing any kind of competitors and rivals. And to that extent, the U.S. kind of just permanently being hostilities with Iran, Islamic Republic or no, I would argue. Um, to to keep them in the penalty box and not engage them that will come at the expense of this partnership that the, that the Israelis, this carte blanche support that the Israelis enjoy from the United States. I think, it, you know, these groups and their, their kind of ally groups in Washington and groups like FDD or JINSA, that's what they want. And I think this JINSA report that Jamal, you had mentioned earlier, that talks about what it wants from Trump going forward, you know, it's a regime collapse strategy. They're not even talking about regime change anymore. They're just talking about the, I don't know, like the central government of Iran. It just needs to be collapsed. And they talk about all these nutty ideas, like all kinds of political intervention inside Iran, stoking unrest, supporting ethnic separatist groups and partitioning the country, uh, military escalation. And I think this is a recipe, A, for war and A, you know, for U.S. boots on the ground. Like, even though the JINSA report, it's, you know, it's very clearly aimed at Trump. And they mentioned several times that we don't, you know, this is not going to lead to U.S. boots on the ground. That we could still withdraw troops from the region and still do this. No, I mean, if you're going to start Iran, it's like with the same with the maximum pressure policy. It's which this is basically reflecting the maximum pressure policy and trying to build on it in some ways. But Iran gets to say, too, you know, our rivals get to say, too, it's not like we just do all this and they're just going to sit still. And as we've seen in the past year that Iran has you know, there's been these tankers that have blown up. Saudi oil facilities have come under attack. U.S. military bases have come under missile attack. We've gone to the brink of war. And if, if we just continue to escalate like this with Iran, it will lead to a war. They get a say, too. And and we're, we're going to get drawn into this conflict that is not in the U.S. national interest. We have we have no, you know, keeping Iran in, the per, in a permanent penalty box and expending all these resources in the Middle East like we have for decades and all these quagmires. And it's been a huge waste. And America is pressing priorities elsewhere and at home and we could benefit from diplomacy with Iran and to, along with uh, all other kind of traditional American partners in the region, kind of gain, boosting our own leverage, withdrawing from the region militarily in some ways. Yeah. 
I think the entire notion of regime collapse as a strategy is it's totally counterintuitive to what like has dominated national security strategy thinking in the U.S. since 2001. It's that these areas where the central government has collapsed are actually a national security threat because they provide this, you know, terrorist safe haven where these groups can, you know, recruit and plan and execute attacks against the West. And even if you set aside kind of the counterterrorism angle, it's also very bad for the people who live in those areas who would otherwise be able to get social services and other things. Uh, so it breeds poverty, it breeds, you know, war, it, it breeds all these negative consequences that are bad, not just for the state, but for the surrounding region as well. So to adopt that as your strategy for Iran, for your vision for a place that houses, you know, 83 million people, is it's totally insane. Like, yeah. it's absolutely, totally insane. Yeah. And, and they're saying, yeah, let's do this for Iran. And actually, yeah, I think you're right. This is basically the Trump administration's strategy as to what they'd like to see at the end of the day. They don't want to actually invest money in creating, like, a, you know, a new Iranian government or anything along those lines. They're out of the nation-building business, if you listen to Donald Trump. But the best that they can get and the best for, you know, you know Jensen's view is let's just collapse the state and then they won't be a competitor to Israel or a competitor to the rest of our regional partners and that sort of thing. And, you know, yeah. I, I also think it's really telling. This guy worked for the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq, which actually oversaw the dismantling of the Iraqi state, which fed an insurgency that, you know, literally, like, <laughs> it was a nightmare for the U.S. And, and for coalition soldiers in Iraq because they undertook debathification, because they disbanded the Iraqi army. They should be learning things. You dismantle a state, bad things happen. You know, Al Qaeda in Iraq, ISIS, like these are these actually stem from those coalition provisional. Right, right. And I can just I can just imagine like in a state like Iran, if it were to collapse. OK, this is a state that has, you know, a lot of conventional weapons, nuclear material. It's on the Strait of Hormuz, uh, Persian Gulf, strategic waterways. If it is really in a state of chaos and there's armed groups and you know militias that arise and insurgents, uh, you know, this is going to have global ramifications you know like these people don't think this through yeah okay so what if this 20 percent leu in iran gets smuggled out and goes to like i don't know some other country what if some insurgent groups start blowing up tankers in the persian gulf and there's no central government like it's 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 such so, a short sighted short-sighted and well, immoral and barbaric strategy see, see so and and right so i do think it's a mistake though to view this as short-sighted from the perspective of the authors and the interests that support this strategy, because this is very much the aim. This is a recipe for forever war in the Middle East. It's a recipe for a permanent U.S. presence, military presence in the Middle East. And if you read the report, it feels like a bad like timeshare pitch, where you go in thinking they're going to talk to you about how uh, this is a strategy for dealing with Iran and for regime collapse. And then the last third of the report is actually, no, they're trying to sell us on why we need to front load all of the money for Israel as part of the Obama-led MOU and why the U.S. is supposed to sign a uh, defense treaty with Israel and all these giveaways to Israel to make Israel. And it, it sort of infers, you know, Israel can be the U.S. security force that patrols the region. And I think that this is very deliberately 
um, you know, quote unquote, short sighted, because the idea here is keep the U.S. locked into, uh, if not a permanent military presence, then essentially having, you know, Israel run a Middle Eastern empire dominated by the United States. And, and that's that's what this is. It's not it's, it's very deliberate. Yeah. I agree with that. When I read it, I thought of it as, you know, they want to popularize this notion, similar to the way that Iraq regime change was popular, or made popular under Bill Clinton, uh, so that they lock a future administration into a more hawkish course than they otherwise might, you know, be amenable to. So I, I thought of, you know, kind of that as kind of the parallel that they're kind of aiming for, you know, kind of hedge their bets a little bit and, and try to make it so that, you know, well, if we go back to the nuclear deal, then the regime collapse strategy is on hold and so forth. And we've got all these bipartisan people who thinks that would be such a disaster. You know, yeah. just touching on the report itself, though, this line really stuck out to me. It, was, it, it said, and though one can't know what sort of regime would follow in Iran, there is cause for optimism. <laughs> And he actually doesn't go on to mention, you know, there's the MEK there around, you know, yeah. my, you know, Mario Marjorie says something about democracy. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Which just is one thing, yeah. Like one thing that, you know, as someone of Iranian heritage, that obviously infuriates me about this and to see, unfortunately, a lot of kind of members of the Iranian opposition and kind of the monarchist groups and the MEK, to have really, you know, aligned themselves strongly with these policies is that these policies are transparently aimed at the destruction of this country of 83 million people. It's not about the Islamic Republic. It's like they're openly talking about supporting ethnic separatist groups, uh, stoking unrest, all this, you know, all these brutal economic sanctions. And this is just going to lead to the collapse of this entire country. And I think, you know, and the alternative of, you know, ruling out any potential for kind of peaceful democratic change, like... It's like many of these groups either don't care, like, yeah, wittingly or unwittingly. They're just like they've been co-opted into supporting these kind of very destructive policies. Yeah, it seems like either, you know, so-called external Iranian opposition groups are either delusional in not understanding, you know, by aligning with with these elements that want to you know, collapse Iran, that they're being used and there's no end game in sight, or they've convinced themselves to be opportunistic and, okay, we're going to leverage these forces in order to, you know, collapse Iran's regime. And then that's going to give us a way in where we can, we can rule Iran. Um, and I think what it kind of exposes is, I mean, as, you know, as flawed as the, you know, Islamic revolution ultimately became and and the failure to actually live up to the promises of this sort of you know multi-party coalition that uh supported uh the revolution and then many of whom were then excluded from governing the country and uh a lot of the promises that were made were not, obviously not kept as far as a representative government and respecting the rights but the one area where i think that the revolution did succeed is Iran now existing as an independent state, not as beholden to, uh, you know, imperial powers, not beholden to the United States. And a lot of this conversation is really about returning Iran to being a proxy state for the United States. And, and this unwillingness by 
the United States, by its allies, to accept the notion of an independent Iran that is not de facto going to be um, a threat to U.S. or you know other interests. Um, and so we can't trust Iran with independence. We have to either be in control or we have to be in a position where the state is collapsed and so it can't function. Um, and so all of these, I mean, anybody who is in the so-called opposition but is aligning themselves with the Trump administration or the Netanyahu government um, is really saying, I support the notion of an Iran that is a state controlled by the United States. And I, because I, as an actor, am controlled by the United States. And so that is what I think Iran should be resigned to. Not that, and so when they say like the regime is unreformable, they're really saying Iran can't exist as an independent state. It has to be under the stewardship of a higher, uh, more powerful state like the United States. But Jamal, I'm convinced that that's not like for the authors of this report, that's not their aim. And I think that's that's not an ideal kind of outcome for them. Like, I think, you know, their opposition to the Iran nuclear deal was really rooted in the fact that Iran-U.S. relations would improve. Like even a scenario where there is an Iranian state that is mm -hmm. more democratic and representative and has a better relations with America, I don't think I don't think they would want that. I think you know Mark Dubowitz himself has said that he prefers these kind of these um, quote unquote moderate autocrats who rule in these countries, which is basically, in my view, that means like these kind of these people who don't upset part, these objectives of the Israeli hard right. And I think you know this report straight up says that they want to partition Syria, Yemen, Iraq. Iran. It's insane. So basically the idea is to have this kind of fortress expansionist Israel that is, you know, is this kind of minority state for the people it rules over this kind of mass of kind of Muslim societies that are in chaos and civil war and has nuclear weapons and the Israeli state has nuclear weapons and it just, it, it is this dominant power in this region. And I think, I think, um, yep. that's an, that's an obstacle to democratization in this region. I think if we mm -hmm. did have an Iran that is a strong, prosperous, democracy i don't know if yet yeah, the, these people in the israeli hard right or even in saudi arabia and I, I don't think they would welcome that that would naturally also become a strong regional power naturally also want to provide for its own security have interests in the region if it is democratic you know iran is ultimately a muslim society it's not going to have the best of relations with israel you know at best it would be something like malaysia kind of non-recognition still pushing for palestinian rights and i think you know we even saw with morsi in egypt you know morsi the israelis kind of tacitly you know if not tacitly I mean, if not overtly, tacitly supported his overthrow. And he was a democratically elected leader mm -hmm. there. And, and you know, now we have this pliant kind of LCC, this very corrupt dictator there. So I yeah. think, yeah, at this point, it's even more, yeah, for me, it's like, I don't know if even an arrangement like existed under the Shah is what the objective for many of these kind of groups and organization interests is. I think they their preference is really just a collapse state. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think that's, I think that is accurate. Um, I don't know that they have, um, they haven't articulated an, an end state. So, all right. So we only have a couple minutes left. So let's talk a little bit about, about our boy, Joe Biden, uh, the, the man who has inspired a nation. Um, so, so Sina, so you had a piece, you actually had a, a two part series in uh, responsible statecraft. Um, and the first part actually looked at a report from a, a center-left organization, Center for New American Security, uh, which advocated that the United States should actually potentially borrow from Israel's playbook in dealing with Iran and Syria um, as part of a broader strategy to sort of 
contain and and uh, challenge Iran throughout the region. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then I think the the bigger fear here, which is that there is now a contest to determine which direction a Biden administration would go vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East, and that there is a campaign right now among both, you know, long-term kind of centrist Democrats, as well as, you know, neoconservatives and others who have been kind of ousted from the Trump version of the Republican Party, who are now looking to come in from the cold and influence a potential Democratic administration, um, and trying to uh, ensure that a Biden administration does not go on the path of sort of trying to return to the deal and return to seeking diplomacy with Iran, but instead is stuck in this um, this state of limbo of sort of perpetual conflict with Iran. So do you want to lay out kind of the argument of your piece and how you react to the CNAS report and the problems with that? Yeah, I think it's, it's a very problematic piece. It basically, in its recommendation, is suggesting that the U.S. kind of build on maximum pressure with military escalation. Just, I mean, it doesn't really talk about maximum pressure, the role that it has right now in U.S.-Iran relations. But basically, it, this report talks about these Iranian actions in what it calls the gray zone. And the gray zone is basically this, this area that defines these, these war zones in the region and these kind of destabilized power vacuums where Iran, over the years, it says, you know, it's been very successful in kind of cementing its influence striking against U.S. interests, all this stuff. And it says that, you know, U.S. sanctions, all this stuff, it has not been effective in pushing Iran out of this, pushing Iran out of the, the this gray zone and kind of being an effective strategy. You know, it hasn't been effective against Iran, whether in Iraq and Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, you know, these so-called gray zone areas that Iran has kind of increased its influence in. Mm. And then it, it uses this to say um, that in Syria, the strategy that Israel has pursued of kind of bombing a lot of Iranian targets and capabilities there, that this has been successful. And this has kind of, this has been a, this kind of military option that has been used by Israel against Iran in the gray zone that has been successful. And so the logic really here falls flat because it doesn't really, like, it doesn't make clear it, what the objective of, what the, the, the strategic objective of the Israeli strikes in Syria is. Like, if the strategic objective was removing Iran from Syria or, or kind of preventing Iranian missiles and kind of precision missile technology from reaching Hezbollah, the, it, it itself admits that that has failed. Yeah. Okay, so if, But if the objective is just like bombing some Iranian sites and, you know, risking a major escalation of tensions and delaying some of this stuff, yeah, it achieved that. But in the broader strategic picture, nothing has changed. And I think, and then so it, it also... And then the piece, this, this CNAS report goes on to talk about these various actions Iran has taken in the past year and a half in response to maximum pressure. We've seen the, the oil tankers blowing up, these attacks in Iraq and elsewhere. And then it says that, you know, the U.S. should consider emulating this Israeli approach. And, you know, like military, like it says, after the Saudi oil facilities were bombed in last September, that, yeah. you know, the U.S. should have considered bombing Iranian oil refineries in Iran. And this yeah. is just, this is not, this is crazy. You know, yeah. this is the recipe for military escalation. A, it's not analogous to Syria in many ways. And the idea, and it totally ignores the role of U.S. policy creating this situation in, in these, es these, increase, these escalations from Iran. Like Iran was not, you know, it had no role in attacking Saudi oil facilities, oil tankers in the Persian Gulf, Iraq, before maximum pressure, before it was fo faced with this existential threat of its entire economy collapsing and all this, this, this pressure. Yeah. 
And that is what triggered this. And this CNAS report does not look at that aspect and kind of undoing that policy or that role of that policy. But it's like, oh, you know, Iran is increasing these gray zone actions and it's been successful in the gray zones. And the Israelis have pursued this policy that really hasn't led to any strategic payoffs. But we should just emulate this and use it to attack, you know, Iran domestically inside the country. That's that's a recipe for war. My concern with this is that arguably this would be a tactical adjustment that may benefit maximum pressure if you believe that maximum pressure is a wise strategy. So it's it's almost saying, you know, if we let's just accept that maximum pressure is the right way to go, even though it's unclear what the strategic endgame of maximum pressure is. But we should adjust our tactics to, as you said, augment the sanctions with a new way of putting military pressure on Iran. And the concern that I have is that, I mean, you know, CNES does good work. Um, We have worked with them, um, but they're much more sort of in the centrist, you know, I guess, democratic national security. I don't want to say mainstream, but, you know, kind of status quo. Um, My concern is that, what? The blob. The blob, that's a good term for it. Um, my concern is that, you know, successive democratic administrations have really viewed the, um, have, have viewed governance not as leadership, but as management, okay? Managing crises, not trying to actually, you know, the nuclear deal was notable in that it was not seeking to just manage the confrontation with Iran, but actually pursue a new strategy. My concern with reports like this is that a, I could see a Biden administration instead of seeking to fully pivot out of what Trump did and essentially do what Trump did to the Iran deal by completely abandoning it and moving in a new direction, that instead a Biden administration would try to have it both ways and sort of, okay, we're going to do diplomacy, but we're also going to kind of continue maximum pressure and try to, you know, as the as the Obama administration early on called it, the dual track approach, as if we're going to be working in countervailing directions and somehow those two tracks are eventually going to meet. Um, and so if this is the strategy that is adopted by Biden, I, you know, this, these tactics directly undermine the potential for returning to the deal or the potential for having diplomacy with, with Iran. They are tactics that say, no, we are, we're going to be in perpetual conflict, and so we need to be actually responding militarily to these things. And so we look at uh, what Biden's uh, team has been saying over the past week, and it's raised some eyebrows. Um, so Tony Blinken, who uh, is Biden's top advisor on foreign policy, somebody who did, you know, important and 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 very good things at the state department and in the white house uh, under obama uh, but sort of seeming to hedge a little bit on whether biden would seek a sort of unconditional mutual return to the jcpoa um speaking before a group called the um <laughs> it's like you know uh diet apac what's what is it uh democratic majority for israel Democratic Majority for Israel, uh, an organization started by, essentially started by AIPAC, started by, you know, former AIPAC people recognizing that AIPAC was increasingly being drawn into the splintering of the, you know, political consensus around Israel. Uh, that really took place around the the 
contest over whether to allow the Iran deal to go forward in Congress and with Netanyahu coming to Congress. AIPAC ended up burning a lot of bridges in opposing President Obama's signature Middle East policy. And so this, or, this organization was formed to try to claw back some of that support within the Democratic mainstream and really as, I think, a, you know, a counterforce to J Street and a way to kind of put the typical, you know, APAC donors who are drifting rightward and try to capture some of the Democratic APAC donors who still support APAC's very right-wing problematic policies, but putting a Democratic veneer on it. So Tony Blinken was speaking before that group and had a quote where he sort of, he said that Biden would seek to return to the deal, but would, uh, would immediately try to get a much stronger deal. And I think in the back and forth, it was made clear, no, Biden has not caved on this commitment that he would return to the JCPOA full stop as long as Iran mutually returns. But it raises some questions about, okay, well, then what is that second step here? Um, Are new negotiations to extend the sunsets around the deal or to extend, you know, other elements of the deal that are going to expire, are those going to be uh, made contingent on a U.S. return to the deal, or, or sorry, vice versa, is a U.S. return going to be threatened by those talks having to yield certain outcomes? If they don't yield those outcomes, does that mean uh, the U.S. is not going to return the deal or the U.S. is going to abandon the deal? Um, what is the actual strategy going to be beyond just returning to the JCPOA? Is it going to be one in which the U.S. seeks to build up its leverage against Iran uh, through, you know, a, a, a lighter version of maximum pressure, or is it going to be a be one where Biden seeks to actually build off of what Obama did? And so reports like this raise some concern that there's going to be serious hedging from a new administration. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what the Biden team has said around Iran, it's not a lot, um, and, and it's the same formulation. They will get back into the deal if Iran agrees to do the same. And then they will, uh, on the one hand, uh, pursue a stronger agreement on the nuclear deal, and they will push back more effectively, you know, quote unquote, uh, against Iran's nefarious activities in the region and so forth. When I hear that kind of formulation, it sounds to me like the JCPOA is going to be the ceiling of engagement, Mm -hmm. that we can do the nuclear stuff because that's a threat to us, but like we are fundamentally opposed to, you know, reaching a new accommodation in the region that, you know, perhaps addresses conflicts through diplomacy rather than, you know, at the at the barrel of a gun and so forth. So, uh, you know, I do think that is concerning because like we've seen that, you know, pushback only really, you know, I think stokes the fires across the Middle East that it doesn't, uh, you know, achieve a resolution of the conflict in Syria or Yemen or anything along those lines. So what's your, what's your broader vision for the Middle East? Are we just going to be managing these conflicts forever? Are we just going to, you know, continue to weigh heavily on the side of the Saudi Iran proxy war in the Saudi kingdom's favor? You know, these are the kind of things that I'd want to hear the Biden administration articulate more as it, you know, starts to develop its Middle East policy more. And, and, and not just try to return to the status quo ante where like, okay, we're getting back in the deal and then, you know, we're not going to build on it. We're just going to continue right. the, 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 the mutual confrontation. Right. And the, the, I mean, there's a, there's a danger because there's not a lot of time for hedging. Right. Uh, when a new administration is sworn in, hopefully, um, there's only a few months before Iran's presidential elections, um, yeah. in, you know, in June of 2021. Right. So, and, and that could then usher in 
you know, an extreme hardliner, uh, somebody cut out of the Ahmadinejad mold. Uh, it could codify uh, the the failure of the JCPOA and Iran's return to, you know, permanent maximum resistance to the United States. So the, the team Biden would not have a lot of time to put things back on the right footing before there is potentially a crisis that um, erupts with Iran. And so there's going to be a need for some bold leadership and some very clear sighted, you know, this is our policy and strategy with Iran. Um, let's let's return to as many of the gains as were built under the Obama administration as possible so we can build on them instead of, as you say, sort of just accepting the status quo. So I think that's that's very dangerous. I do have optimism, you know, I'm about what um, Biden's team actually believes would be successful. I'm less optimistic about how a democratic administration would actually view the politics of these debates and the level to which it's constrained by the politics from actually doing bold things that lead to better outcomes and thus provide more political space for more bold leadership. I, I'm worried that instead it's going to be, let's just tread water on this and try not to get in too much trouble over it. Right. Well, you know, I think just touching on that time frame of like January to, to May of 2021, that's such a key time frame. If you go back to the Obama administration's successful diplomacy with the Rouhani administration, it actually wasn't started under the Rouhani administration. It started under the Ahmadinejad administration, where you had uh, you know, Jake Sullivan and Bill Burns going and meeting the Iranians and hashing out a lot of what became the interim nuclear agreement. That actually uh, you know, foreshadowed Rouhani's election, who came in with the mandate to do the nuclear deal, and, and then it, it, it shortly thereafter, it, it came together. So you know, if you want to do some back-channel negotiations on some, some issues of critical importance, you should be thinking through that strategy. Uh, you know, essentially before you take office so you can execute it. I think one important thing is really that the Trump administration's policies towards Iran, this is, you know, it's represented the peak of U.S. pressure policies towards Iran. Like, this is it. Even if the Biden administration was going to kind of emulate some of this stuff, like short of war, they're really doing everything. And, it, and it's demonstrated the failure of this approach. Like, you know, it's, it's an, Iranian actions in the region continued. Its influence is still there. Uh, and domestically, the system has just gotten more repressive. The hardliners have been empowered. The Iranian people have been impoverished. So this is the result of this policy. This is like the the lodge, the kind of the end of the end of pressure policies, and this is what it's reaped. So I think this should be a grounds for a Biden administration to really rethink to approach to Iran and the region broadly and be like, okay, so pressure has has reaped this. Uh, I can continue this is probably, you know, it's not going to change anything. This is going to, it's situation is going to get more unstable. There might be war or a really kind of a, a kind of vision, a, a, a new vision for the entire region centered on diplomacy, centered on, Hey, we have some interests with Iran. We have some shared interests with Iran and we have some opposing interests with Iran. We also have some shared interests with Saudi Arabia and some opposing interests with Iran. We have some shared interests with Israel and opposing interests with Israel and like the two-state solution and many strategic issues. So if we had a more balanced approach where we kind of engage in diplomacy with all these countries where it's when it suited us and kind of balance them against each other in other cases. And also, you know, there's room, you know, for pressuring these different countries. But it would be allow the U.S. to kind of extricate itself from the, a lot of the regional countries, gain leverage over all of these countries and you know, incentivize them to kind of try to gain U.S. favor. Okay, so the Saudis don't just expect unconditional favor, you know, U.S. support when they 
chop up Khashoggi or bomb Yemen to the medieval age or all this stuff. And this could be this could be really the groundwork for a kind of a, a new region, regional kind of order that prioritizes diplomacy. It could, the U.S. can even spur cooperation between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, I think there's uh, the Biden administration, you know, if they did a broad review of all the Iran and Middle East policy, this is like a real logical conclusion to kind of to really change our kind of approach to this region.